Thank you for listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. We're currently going through a sermon series about King David in 2 Samuel. David was a shadow of Jesus, the King of Kings who had come to save us from our sin and offer us eternal life. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. So we're going to be in our series in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to be really looking at the latter part of the chapter today. We're going to be looking at prayer. Today's message is entitled, The King's Prayer. And it's going to be, in some ways, I think, some of the things Lars was saying, even with the Lord's Prayer and some of those statements, I can't help but have that be running through my head. And as we are going to be studying David's prayer today, we're going to see at different times how that will coincide. It will it kind of pull out different aspects of, of the Lord's Prayer that simultaneously, in so many ways, line right up with David's prayer. Last week, though, we did go over uh, a, a large amount of material. We went through like seven chapters or so, uh, and we had this timeline. I don't know if the, I didn't tell the booth until just recently, but uh, we have a timeline from last week that we went through, where we, we walked through the different aspects of of uh, chapters one through seven, where we began, where there was a lot of bloodshed, assassination, and the transfer of the kingdoms, and all of those kinds of things that are going on. Uh, there was a lot happening. And so I'm just trying to bring our minds into understanding of where we're at again. We had that aspect of um, the kingdoms were divided, and David is finally coming and taking the throne and uniting the kingdoms under one banner. Saul has passed away, and now King David is on the throne. And then King David leads the people into peace by suppressing a lot of the enemies around him. And then in chapter 7, we see this extraordinary moment, uh, chapter 6 and 7 that is, where David uh, takes Jerusalem, and he makes Jerusalem the capital city. And he, he calls it, the, it's, it's known today as the city of David. And we remarked that how through history, oh, look at that, there it is, look at that. Uh, we, we see the city of David and, and that aspect where he takes Jerusalem and throughout history, throughout the history of the Bible, we see so much takes place on the Temple Mount there. So much takes place in Jerusalem. In fact, some of you have relatives who are just coming back from Israel right now. There's a trip that was experiencing Israel over the last couple of days, or week, I guess, or so, in Israel. And they were, sh- I, I saw pictures of different friends that were over there sharing photos of Jerusalem and all the events that took place there. And it's so cool to travel and be there in real life. So neat. But when you read about it, David takes Jerusalem. He makes it to this, the capital city. He actually takes it by going through the tunnels of the waterways, which you can still go in through today, Hezekiah's tunnel and all these kinds of things. But he makes this the headquarters. And then he brings the Ark of the Covenant up into the Temple Mount, and he restores the worship. But you remember, it was misused at time, for they brought the Ark on a cart, and Uzzah tries to stop it from falling and is struck dead. And this, this moment of holiness, of striking fear into the people of God, of the greatness of God is presented to them. Then the sacrifice is restored and worship is renewed and David is dancing in front of the ark. There's there's worship and praise and instruments and music and singing and praise and trumpets being blown as the ark of the covenant, the presence of God, comes into the city of Jerusalem. A tent is set up, a tabernacle of sorts, and they set it up there. And there is this, there's this, for the first time in a long time, there's a sense of peace. The people of God are united there's a, there's a leader who's pure and righteously sitting before God and seeking his will. 
There's no longer this civil war and backstabbing going on. Now we know from the storyline, this will be short-lived as, as things will go in one direction. But what we see is this pinnacle. We see David on that mountain. We see him on the Temple Mount, on Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, whatever you want to call it, variety of names. And we see that one day the final David, the final anointed one, the final Messiah will come to that mountain again on Palm Sunday. And he will ride in on a donkey and eventually he will be crucified on the Temple Mount outside the city there on Jerusalem, right outside the city walls and Golgotha. They'll take the cross in that same location. And it's through all of that that that's in the backdrop of our mind. Because what I want to do is actually read some of 2 Samuel 7. I'm going to hop around here. We're really going to focus on the latter part of it, like I said. But I want to read is 2 Samuel 7 verse 1. And you'll notice some of the, the phrasing here is God speaking to David here in a moment by giving him a covenant and a promise. And he's going to be making a, a promise of blessing with him. Second Samuel 7 verse 1 says, The king had settled into his palace, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. And the king said to the prophet Nathan, Look, I am living in a cedar house. This big palace. While the ark of God sits inside tent curtains. Like in a, the ark of the covenant's in a tent. I'm in a palace. This doesn't seem to be right. So Nathan told the king, go and do all that is on your mind for the Lord is with you. Verse four, but that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Verse five, go to my servant David and say, this is what the Lord says. Are you to build me a house to dwell in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I have not dwelt in a house Instead, I've been moving around from tents in my, uh, as my dwelling. In all my journeys with the Israelites, have I ever spoken a word to a tribal leader of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, asking, why haven't you built me a house of cedar or a temple? So now this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies or the Lord of hosts says. I took you, David, from the pasture, from tending the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone. I've destroyed all your enemies before you. And I will make a great name for you like that of the greatest on earth. That's an incredible statement. Verse 10, and I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done. Ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. Do you see that statement? David said, I'm living in a cedar house. The tent, uh, there's a tent there that covers the, the Lord and the Ark of the Covenant's in a tent. I want to make a house for God. And God says to David, I'm going to make a house for you. That's, that's an amazing statement. Then verse 12. When your time has come and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up from you, from your descendant, who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. What is his name? His name is Solomon. King Solomon, his son of David, will come and build a house, the temple. And I will establish his throne and his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. And he, when he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love, my faithful love will never leave him. 
as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. That statement right there is an incredible phrase. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. This is the covenant that God makes with David, a promise to David. That David will, in his dynasty, in his throne, he will have someone on that throne forever. And how is it that he can make that statement? We talked about this last week. But ultimately, Jesus is known as the son of God, but also as the son of David. For he was born in the line and lineage of David, was he not? In the city of David, in Bethlehem. And in Jerusalem, he takes this place in all of these kinds of ways, right? We see all of these things coming together in the New Testament. But it's this response that I want us to look at today. For David has just received one of the greatest blessings that God could ever give to mankind. He, he blesses David and his home that the line of David will continue to the Messiah, the one who will come and save the world. And yet he comes to David and says these things and then how is it that David responds? I just wanna look at that today with you briefly. The response that David has. So if you look at verse 18, 2 Samuel 7 verse 18. David is going to respond in prayer and praise. We've already done those things today. We've prayed and we've praised God. And, and it is very uh, amazing to, to read through his prayer and to have his prayer kind of shape and fashion our own today. So look at verse 18. When King David went in, what did he do? He sat in the Lord's presence. And he said, who am I, Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? What you have done so far was a little thing to you, Lord God, for you have also spoken about your servant's house in the distant future. And this is a revelation or instruction for mankind, Lord God. Verse 20, and what, what more can David say to you? You know your servant, Lord God. Because of your word and according to your will, you have revealed all the great things to your servant. This is why you are great, Lord God, there is no one like you, there is no God beside you, as we have all heard and confirms. So I'm going to stop there. I want us to look at this first phrase, this first idea. Verse 18, he comes into the presence of God and he sits in the Lord's presence. I just love the way that this is typified, this picture where we see the king, not on a throne at this moment. But it's as if he comes into the tabernacle, into the tent, and he sits in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. And he sits in this place, in the presence, in the nearness, and he sits in stillness. It is as if he just sits down in God's presence. He slows down. There's quiet. There's stillness. There's no sound. And it's as if he sits and he simply listens to God. He prays with God. And these are his words. And what is his response? When he sits in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, the, the visible presence of God on earth, when it is as if he is there, what is his response? He, he immediately responds by saying, who am I? Who am I? He, he's awestruck. He's dumbfounded. Later on in verse 20, it's like he's at a loss for words. He says, what more can David say to you? I, what, what, what am I supposed to say? There's this sheer weight of the blessing that God has given him and poured out on his life. And his immediate response is not pride or arrogance 
or, well, yeah, I deserve this, his immediate response is what? Humility. I, I don't even know what to say. He's speechless. Who am I? What is my house, my family, my life, my legacy, my dynasty that you are preparing for me? Why me? Why me? I don't know if you've ever received a gift that is almost too good to be true. Or as Lars has just talking about those who have been blessed, blessing others. I know my life, my family, I have been blessed greatly by many of you. Some of you, I, I've never been able to thank you or properly thank you for the blessings that you've given to me. And the, the help and the support that you've been to me and my wife. And there are times when you experience great blessing. People give of, to you and you, you don't know what to say, right? Have you, ever been you don't know how to, how do you get into words what it is God is doing? How do you communicate these things? What is it that I have done to receive this blessing? This is David's response, this great and magnificent blessing. What is it that I have done to receive this? What is it that I have done, God? What we would describe here is ultimately David's humility, his honor stands out. Who am I, why is me? And and then maybe just that that statement almost for me has, has stuck in my heart at times. Why me, right? Why, why is it that, as we were saying, why, why is it that we're born in this country with the freedoms that we have, with the prosperity that we've been given in this nation? Why us? Why is it that we have, in some ways, as it seems like, seems at times to feel like I've won the lottery, you know? <laughs> How is it that we've been given the truth of the scripture and the word and it's an amazing thing to, to think about, the providence and sovereignty of God. Why me? There are many things we complain about in this world, many things that we're frustrated with in this world, and yet you find yourself today sitting under the preaching of God's word, surrounded by people who are seeking the Lord, and the truth is presented to you, and that alone causes us to be humbled and say, why me? Thank you, Lord, for choosing me. Thank you, God, for your grace on, your, our, on my life. And that, that's the word I guess I want us to focus on, grace. That's what I think he's trying to, trying to explain. It is God's grace upon him. It's an unmerited divine favor. It's an undeserved kindness that is lavished upon you, seen through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is our sacrifice and our substitute. He atones for our sin. And we would not have to die in hell forever, but rather we have eternal life with him to be enjoyed in the new heaven and new earth for eternity, forever. It is God's grace and his blessing. Jesus describes this in the Sermon of the Mount as the kingdom of God, that if you are within the kingdom of God, you are blessed. Blessed are you. We find ourselves experiencing the divine favor from God, and, and our only response to that is why me? I don't deserve this. Isaiah finds himself in the presence of God and he says, woe is me. <laughs> I am a man undone with unclean lips. It's as if he is in awe, as if the holiness of God is before him and he knows that he is unworthy. He is unworthy. Who am I? We would talk about this idea as James 1.16. We looked at this in Christmas time. It is from his fullness 
that we have all received grace upon grace. It is in James where we just see that it says, but he gives more grace. It is as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, for I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Amazing, right? We we know of that statement that many times you'll hear people say, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. But for the grace of God, I could be right there. But it's only by God's grace that I'm not. You sit here today because of God's grace upon your life brings and, and exudes in our life the desire to praise and desire to lift him up and to be thankful for all he's done for us. By the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me is not in vain. For it is God's grace that is within me, not me. David knows that he is only here in this position by God's grace, yet David has responded in righteousness and in obedience. He has, he has passed the test. He has resisted temptation that has been put in front of his way. And he is filled with the spirit and walking in his way. And so we cannot deny God's guiding hand and leading David at every step of the way. In a similar manner, our desire to follow the Lord with our lives, resist temptation, respond in obedience and in holiness and watch God's grace and spirit fill us and take care of us. And yet I love David's heart in this. He begins in verse 18, sitting in the presence of God. Who am I? And then what does he say? Lord God, and what is my house that you've brought me thus far? Verse 19, he says, for you also have spoken about your servant's house. Then verse 20, you know your servant, Lord God. Then verse 21, you revealed all these great things to your servant. You'll find 10 times in this short little prayer, David will refer to himself as a servant. He's the king of Israel. <laughs> Don't you know who I am? <laughs> David responds in the exact opposite way. Who am I? I'm your servant. That's all I am. I am your servant. And he refers to himself as a servant and he refers to God as master. You'll see almost, I think it's almost 10 times in this little passage, he'll say, Lord God, Lord God, Lord God, Lord God. He says it over and over. And he says, Lord is the word Adonai there, this sense of, of master. Then the word God, you'll see in many of your translations, will be capitalized. All the letters will be capitalized, G-O-D. That refers to, when they're all capitalized, whether it's Lord or God, all capitalized, refers to Yahweh, the tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H. I am that I am. God's personal name that he has revealed to Israel. So it is God is our master. So David says, I'm your servant, you are my master, yet you are my personal God, the one who I know and the one who knows me. You are Yahweh. Yahweh. And it is to that master and to that Yahweh, that Lord God that he prays. And in verse 21, he says, it is all of these things are welled up within me, he says, because of your word and according to your will. You see that? Verse 21, according to your will. Does that sound familiar? Right? Does that familiar? Your kingdom come, your will be done, right? Here, David says the same thing. It's according to your will. 
I think we've remarked last week as we were focusing on that phrase, but your will, those have got to be some of the hardest words to pray, are they not? I mean, it's one thing to say your will be done when the situation is already working in your favor or the way you want it to work out, but what if, what if it's, it's literally saying the opposite of just saying your will, your will, your will, not mine, your kingdom, not mine. That surrender, as Lars was talking about earlier, that sur- life surrendered, like that submission, that humility is, that's not easy. I don't know if you can come up with the most difficult words to pray in the Lord's Prayer, but those have got to be on the top of the list. To pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. To pray, like David says, according to your will Jesus says this in the garden. Father, if this cannot pass away from me, I I will drink it. May your will be done. I will take of this cup. May your will be done, Jesus says. And so it's so much that I would say that in our prayers, when we pray, we pray in this manner, in this way, sitting in stillness, in quietness. I actually saw online this week, they did a study on young professionals coming right out of college. And I think that I saw online, I don't know where, I don't know the reference, so forgive me if it's not completely accurate, but they, they said it was uh, 580 young professionals right out of college that they were studying and that almost every single one of them were uh, qualified for a fear of quiet, a fear of stillness, a fear of no noise. I don't know what the term was that they used, but it was this literal, they have struggle and they fear they fear quiet. And maybe that's like you. I don't know. Your life is, the radio's going, the earbuds are going, the podcast is going, the music is going. You're talking, there's times, the kids are crying and you're driving, whatever. There's a show on the background, the sports game is going or, you know, whatever it is, you're binge watching this and then you go to bed, then you doom scroll for an hour before you can go to sleep, right? It's like we're constantly inundated with sound and noise and in your face and for us to come into the presence of God and, and just be still, to be quiet, to listen, then to simply not request anything but just to praise him. This is a difficult thing. This is a, a habit, a lifestyle, a way of prayer that I I will admit is a struggle for me. And so it's according to your will. It's coming into this awestruck wonder of God that we come before him. And then, in many ways, we're about to praise him. But before we move on to this kind of second, the the final points will will go quickly here. I want us to look at this verse 19 at the end of that phrase. It's a phrase that I'm still working out myself. So I want to kind of share with you a little bit of what I've been studying on it. Um, it's just a phrase that I fluffed over. Is that a term? I think that's a term. Fluffed over it the first several times I read it. But it's the last line there, verse 19. And, and again, depending on what, revel, uh, what uh, Bible version you're reading from, you might have a different term for this because it is a, it's an interesting phrase, may I say. Verse 18 is talking about this idea that God has blessed David's dynasty and and really his throne and kingdom will will be predicted. It's a prophecy that in the future he will always have one on the throne, his kingly line. David didn't know exactly how this was going to play out. 
We do, as we look back, we see Jesus in all of this, but he's blown away that in the distant future, God is gonna bless him and has prophesied these things. But then at the end, in verse 19, that final phrase, it says, and this is a revelation for mankind, Lord God. That phrase has just kind of been going over in my head here as I was looking at it, studying into it. This idea, this word, this revelation, some of your translations might say instruction, maybe even say manners, maybe even say custom. The, the word for that revelation, the Hebrew word is Torah. Torah. It's a familiar phrase for many of us. In fact, like the first five books of the Bible are often known as the Torah. Uh, the first by five books of Moses, Torah, essentially means law, instruction, teaching. And Torah can often represent God's divine revelation to the nation of Israel as it is poured out to them that God spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai and revealed the commandments and these things to him that he then took and recorded that we have later. This is Torah, right? And yet here, David, in a, many years later, says this is Torah for mankind. The phrase in Hebrew is Torah ha-adam. It is Adam. The word Adam is also Adam in the capital word for first man. But the word Adam also means man. And so when he says God made man, Adam, he, and he called his name Adam, Adam, right? And the terms are simul, mean the same thing. And so this idea of, this is Torah ah Adam, this is law, this is a new divine revelation for all the world. It's an extraordinary statement, and I know maybe some of this is challenging to, to grasp, and I'm quoting weird Hebrew words, but if you can focus with me on this idea of how amazing this is. There's a little phrase that this is revelation for all of mankind. This is God's new divine revelation. What is that? That God is going to establish a kingdom forever by through the lineage of David. And his kingdom and his righteousness and his peace will have no end. This is an extraordinary statement for mankind. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Right? This idea that he would come and then he would build a kingdom that we now participate in. The kingdom of God through relationship with Jesus, our king. That he rules and reigns forever. There will be a king on the throne, the king of kings for all time. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about this, that it is written that the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. David is referring to this Torah, ah, Adam, this law, this divine revelation for all of the world would not just be ethnically through the people of Israel, but would be expanded to Gentiles like you and me, <laughs> the world. Isn't that awesome? How extraordinary a statement of salvation and redemption would be seen through the lens of Israel, but then be expanded to include all the nations of the world. That this gospel message, that this kingdom would not just be temporary, but it would be eternal, and it would include all tribes, tongues, and languages. That one day in heaven, we will sing to God in every language known to man. People of all skin colors and all backgrounds and all places of the world will gather to praise the king of kings. And in a little tiny statement like this, when David said, this is new revelation for the whole world. 
And no, he maybe did not fully understand everything that we see that we can look back in through the, all of the New Testament, but this is in some ways David's new Torah, this new humanity. The son of David would one day come, the Messiah, the final anointed one, Jesus Christ himself. This is prophesied centuries before, centuries before. And what I want to do is look into this final section here, really, I guess these final two sections, but you'll see how they work together. But in verse 22, let's read. It says, this is why you are great. Look at this. This is why you are great, Lord God. There is no one like you. There is no God besides you. For all we have heard confirms this. And look at verse 23. We get this snippet of history. And who is like your people Israel? God came to one nation on earth in order to redeem a people for himself to make a name for himself, to perform for them great and awesome acts, driving out nations and their gods before your people, you redeemed for yourself from Egypt. You established your people Israel to be your own people forever, and the Lord hath become their God. The Lord God may fulfill promises forever that you have made to your servant in this house. Do as you have promised, he says. Look at verse 22. In some ways he says, you're great. This is why you are great. Why are you great? Because there's nobody like you. As we pray in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed. That God's name would be hallowed. Somebody shared with me a joke today and it said, what's God's name? And they said, his name is Howard, right? Howard be thy name, right? No, it's not Howard. It's hallowed. And what does hallowed mean? Hallowed means this extraordinary holiness, this reputation that there is no one like you. A unique reputation of God. It is hallowed. It almost as if God's holiness echoes throughout the world. His name is hallowed. His greatness is hallowed. It is extraordinarily great. And that's what he's trying to say, that there's no one like you. There's no God besides you. There's nothing else. That you are set apart and wholly distinct. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That is an extraordinary reputation. And that reputation is so great that it is hallowed. The Ark of the Covenant had that reputation in its sense, that it had power and, and, and it was the sense of awe. And then you have hallowed or you've set apart this special nation. Who is that nation? Well, he's the king of that nation. Verse 23, the king of Israel. God came to one nation on earth. He didn't come to Finland, right? He didn't come to Germany. He didn't come to Australia or whatever nation you, he didn't come to the United States of America. I know that shocks us sometimes, right? He came to Israel. Isn't that extraordinary? And he came to Israel in a certain time, in a certain way, in a certain place. And the Bible actually says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, right? And it's so as when that time was right, and yet he had been preparing the way for centuries so that the people of Israel would be the vehicle to deliver the Savior of the world for the entire world. For himself, really it says this phrase multiple times in verse 23, unless we think that we're always the center of the story, for this prayer is directed to God, you can tell. For verse 23, you'll see, he came right to redeem a people for himself, to make a name for himself, and then the ending there, you redeemed for yourself from Egypt. This is for God. And God's glory. He drove out the, the gods of Egypt through the ten plagues. 
he put down the, the Dagons and the Baals, and he is elevated and exalted above for the glory of God and for him alone, to redeem a people for himself. And then it says, not only for himself, but we are his people, and he is our God. Verse 24, you establish your people Israel to be your own people forever. And your, uh, you, Lord, have become their God. It's an incredible statement. It's an incredible statement. And then verse 25, he says this, do as you have promised. We read that, but verse 25 says, the Lord God, fulfill the promise forever that you have made to your servant and to his house. Do as you have promised so that your name will be exalted forever. When it is said, the Lord of armies is God over Israel, the house of your servant David will be established before you. Since you, Lord of armies, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant when you said, I will build a house for you, therefore your servant has found the courage to pray this prayer to you. Lord God, you are God, your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, please bless your servant's house so that it will continue before you forever. For you, Lord God, have spoken and with your blessing, your servant's house will be blessed forever. I love this phrase then, verse uh, 25. It says, do as you have promised. In some sense, David is praying the promises of God back to him. He's holding on to the promises of God. God, you have said you will do this. Do as you have promised. This is a pattern we find throughout the scripture. Do you remember uh, when Moses intercedes for the people? The golden calf incident. They come down and, and the people are worshiping a golden calf while David is meeting with Yahweh on top of the mountain. Needless to say, God's not very pleased with this. <laughs> he says he's going to destroy them and Moses intercedes. He mediates for the people and says, do not do this. Don't do this. We don't have time to look at the passage. But essentially, he says, don't do this. You promise to rescue them. You promise to make a great nation out of them. And what will the surrounding nations say? That you saved the people out of Egypt just to destroy them in the wilderness? This is what Moses says to God. What does God do? The word, and it's a very challenging theological discussion, but it says God relents. God relents. We see this again in Nehemiah. For the struggling Jerusalem, he prays that God will remember his promise that he made to Moses and not destroy the city and the people now. Nehemiah prays to God. Nehemiah in chapter one and verse nine, he does it again. And then Daniel asks God to deliver the Jews after the 70 years of exile, after reading Jeremiah's promise that God would deliver the Jews after this time. You promised, would you do what you have promised? And so often I think prayer is simply knowing the promises of God, finding them in his word, and praying him, to him, the promises that we believe by faith. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. You have promised to provide for your people. You have promised to give me everything I need. Lord, whatever it is in front of me, give me this day our daily bread. But as Lars said, we don't come to him with that first. We come to him knowing, who am I? Our Father, you're our King. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will come. But Lord, give me my day, our daily bread. I have bills I need to pay. I need food on my table. I need to provide for my children. Lord, help me. We pray to him in faith, knowing he loves to hear our responses in that. He loves to give, as Lars said, pouring out these blessings all good gifts come from the Father of lights. They coming down to us and his people. He pours them out upon us. 
It's in this prayer that we pray with urgency. We pray, forgive us our trespasses. You've promised to forgive me. You forgive me. You have promised that through Son Jesus, through his blood. You have promised to take my sins and nail them to the cross. That is the debt I cannot pray. Forgive me, Lord, forgive me so that I can forgive others who trespass against me. Deliver me from evil. Father, protect me. Help me. Keep me from temptation. You know, Lord, where I am weak. Protect me from those areas in that way. You have promised to do this. You have promised to make a way of escape, to never put a temptation in front of me that I cannot bear. Lord, I am holding you to this. This happens in relationship. We don't demand and declare God be our vending machine. You've heard me say that. Give me what I want. Do what I say. That's not how we have a relationship with God. But we also don't have a relationship with God that we cower in the corner constantly, fearing his constant lightning. He's a good God and he is your father and he wants to bless you. He wants to give you what you need. And so we pray to him in that way. We pray these words, Lord, you are God. Do as you have promised. Verse 28, you are God. Your words are true. You have promised this. I love that. You see that? Verse 28, this is in some ways, I think where David gets the courage to pray. And I want to close with this. You guys see that in verse 20, what, I'm getting confused here. Verse 27 and 28, the end of verse 27, it says, your servant, your servant has found the courage to pray these things to you. And then what are those things? He says, you, your word is true. You've promised this and you're good. You ever find that is the challenge at times? Does it take courage to pray? <laughs> Does it take courage to come into his presence and sit before him and humbly admit that you don't have all your stuff together and you don't have all that you need for whatever it might be and you need to come before the throne to receive help in time of need? It takes a lot of humility. And I dare say, it takes a lot of courage. I want to encourage you today to pray. 